Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. My name is Lalita Tatami, and I'll be reading today from my novel Red River. It's a historical novel, a multi-generational saga based on my ancestors in the 19th and 20th century Louisiana, and it is a blend of fact and fiction that I call faction. The selection that I'm going to read takes place in 1873, after the Civil War and during Reconstruction, when black men could vote. Some of these men, in the small town of Colfax, Louisiana, mostly farmers, including my great-great-grandfather, Israel Smith, have taken up arms and broken into the town's courthouse so that the slate of candidates they have voted in can take office. Israel Smith is not a particularly brave man, but he wants to show his young son, Nobi, how he is defending his voting rights and has brought him into town with him for what he thinks is a day or two just until the federal troop reinforcements arrive from New Orleans. The building seems bigger inside than it looked from outside. Israel enters the wide double doors along with the others, unsure what they will do next. He makes sure Nobi is safe, watching from the corner of his eye as his son settles himself in a corner. Nobi sits small, curling himself into invisibility while the men debate what to do now that they have possession of the courthouse. Though Israel can see Lucy in the boy, her quietness, her reserve, her competence, even under crisis, he sees himself in larger measure, not only physically, but in the occasional mirrored image of his own moodiness staring back at him and the impending menace of the red rages. Nobi is so obviously from his seed, and David is so obviously not. Nobi, his stolen child, stolen from slavery, stolen from death, the first of his seed to live with him in freedom. The sublime blessing of freedom is exacting its price, is demanding his participation here today, and he wants his son to see his bravery. Lucy and Israel came together from Alabama into Louisiana during the war between the states, during an era when bravery wasn't much of an option. They didn't start out as a couple, but came together at the same time, brought in by the same master. Lucy was newly pregnant with David then, but she didn't tell anyone until much later. Israel and Lucy's pairing made sense. Her man was left behind, as were Israel's woman and the children they had together, who hadn't already been sold away. The plantation where they lived and worked was put up for sale along with everyone on it, and the slaves went out in all directions, to other parts of Alabama, to North Carolina, to Louisiana, and down deep into Mississippi. No explanation was given for why they didn't sell Lucy and her man as a pair, but Israel knew he was younger by quite a few years. Maybe the new master thought there was more work left in Israel. Lucy and Israel traveled into central Louisiana by wagon with their new master, a hard, stingy man. By the time they had made the trip and settled into their new surroundings, Lucy and Israel considered themselves together, a pair, 
making do the best they knew how. They were like-minded enough to be all right with each other. David was born while most of the white men were away fighting for the Confederacy. Israel thought he was fully prepared to embrace Lucy's child as his own when David came, even though he was the issue of Lucy's other man. But Israel was sickened when he saw the boy child for the first time. He had felt his insides become a hard knot of disgust and rage. The boy Lucy named David was pale as dried hay, with deep-set eyes and unnatural grayish color, and wisps of straight, light brown hair on his head. He even smelled different. In between the normal baby smells of milk and spit-up and night soil, Israel thought he sniffed out a thin, sharp odor of ruin, a sullied stink. For Lucy's sake, Israel tried to interest himself in little David, to hold him close, but all he could think about was which white man on the old place had forced himself on Lucy and planted this child. Lucy never apologized or made excuses, and Israel never asked who or what or when. He tried hard to swallow back the revulsion he felt for the boy, who grew up to call him Papa, who stared at him with those strange, begging eyes. Noby was born two years later, after the domination of the North ushered in the miracle of freedom in Louisiana and swept along with it the promise of a new kind of life. Israel was relieved to see his nappy-headed brown son, although the baby was puny and sickly from the start. Lucy did what she could for Noby, but the boy seemed always to be crying or choking or both. There was no medicine, only what an old black nursewoman on the place could do with herbs while Lucy and Israel worked the field. More important, there wasn't enough food. Sickly babies didn't have much chance to survive, and Lucy was already heavy with another. The war was all but over, and the land in disarray. White men came back from the front, some in anger, most in defeat, and colored men were on the move, too. With the children in tow, Lucy and Israel set out from the hill country down towards Alexandria and got work on one of the Calhoun plantations. Israel remembers the Sunday in the middle of that sweltering summer when they gave up hope for little Noby, the baby listless for several days already, barely responding. Together, Israel and Lucy laid the child out in the back of a wagon, knowing he wouldn't live another week, maybe not another day. Israel sat vigil alone with Noby, checking to see if he still drew air, trying to get him to drink a drop or two of water, wiping him down. It was the least he could do for the boy, the first son he and Lucy had made together. Noby was lethargic, his breathing dangerously thin, and Israel rigged a shade blanket over his head to mute the sun. Wrapped in his own waiting and grief, Israel was startled when a colored man on a sorrel bay mare passed. "'What you got in the wagon?' the man asked. He was a working farmer with calm brown eyes, fit and well-fed, dressed in dirty overalls and a rough homespun shirt, a little younger than Israel. "'This my son taking his last breaths,' Israel said. His tongue worked against him around strangers, and he had to push at the words to make them come out. 
we laying him out for the Lord. What's wrong with him, the man asked. He spoke almost like a white man. Again, Israel tried to judge the man who talked to him from a high perch on his horse to assess if he posed any danger. Don't know what he got. He weak like from the day he born. The man dismounted and came closer to the wagon. He lifted the thin burial cloth tucked around the lower part of Nobi's body. Skin and bones, he observed. Don't none of us have too much to eat, said Israel. I'd un lost every son of my flesh before they was ten, from either them or me being sold. And now we got freedom, and my boy getting ready to be snatched away before he turned two. The man reached out to feel the baby's forehead, then took one of Nobi's small hands into his own. Weakly, the tiny baby curled a small fist around the stranger's finger. The man looked surprised. Can't eat, you say? We got lots of mouths to feed. Nobi get his share, but there's not much. He got any catching disease? No, sir. None of the rest of the children got this. You work here on the Calhoun place? Yes, sir. My name is Handsome Briscoe. You let him. This baby gonna die right here. Why not give him a chance? My wife will look after him. Israel didn't understand. Pardon me, Mr. Briscoe? Let me take the boy and see if we can help him. The Lord ready to take this boy for his own, sir. What you be wanting with him? Might be nothing wrong but not enough to eat. Briscoe sounded angry. There's enough senseless death to last a lifetime around here. Why, my boy? Why not? The anger drained out of Briscoe's voice and was replaced by a bargaining tone. Briscoe ran his thick and calloused hand, the one Noby didn't have hold of, slowly across the smooth cheek of his sun-baked face, buying time. Look, there's nothing to lose. If the boy dies, I bring him back and you bury him, like you planned. If he lives, in a few days, or weeks, or months, I return him to you healthy. I'm less than half hour's ride from here. Don't seem natural taking a dying boy from his mama and daddy. What they call you? Israel. Israel Smith. All right, Israel. Who take care of the boy tomorrow while you in the field if you don't oblige and die today? You let me try to save this boy's life. I'll pack up food for you and your family, whether he makes it or not and deliver it to you here tomorrow. Israel felt cornered. Handsome Briscoe seemed well-intentioned, and the rest of the family could use the extra food. They were all hungry. Maybe the man really could save Nobi. Israel wanted to believe things like this could happen. You bring back his body, he asked. Yes, but I hope to bring back a boy made well. They wrapped Nobi tighter in the blanket and transferred him from the back of the wagon to a spot Handsome Briscoe made in front of him on his horse. Israel watched the small trail of dust that swirled behind them as Handsome Briscoe rode off with his son. True to his word, Handsome Briscoe brought food for the family and came to visit with periodic reports of Nobi's good progress. 
Two months later, he delivered to Israel and Lucy a vigorous baby boy, strong of lungs, with flesh filled out around his ribs. He's your son, always be yours, but they belong to all of us, said handsome Briscoe. We can't spare a single one. I'll be watching this boy, not only for health, but for what use he put it to. You give me back my son. I can't never pay you back enough, Israel said. But anything in my power I can ever do for you, just ask and it be done. Anything. Then let's start now, says Handsome. I'd like to be godfather to this child, see him to manhood. Israel, grateful for this unexpected smile of fortune, was thankful to comply. Noby Smith had been stolen for the first time from death. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.